0: I turn my other microphone on, it's quite encouraging, and I'm sure our, my brother Joe will agree with me, that we always don't see instant fruit when we minister up here. But I think we did. You know, yesterday I mentioned something about being first in line, and there was instant fruit. You know, that's <laughs> encouraging to see that. <laughs> it's foreordained, he said. <laughs> Well, as most of you know, we're looking at some excerpts, some gleanings from the book of Isaiah. And uh, before we return there this morning, I'd like to just read another verse to kind of set the theme of where we're headed. So if you'd go, first of all, to Second Chronicles chapter 16, please. The book of Second Chronicles and chapter 16. Just break in here at one verse as we get to Second Chronicles 16, and that would be verse 9, God's message to King Asa, verse 9 of Second Chronicles 16. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. And therefore, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. We'll read more, but God does bless the reading of his word. God's eyes making a search throughout the planet, according to this verse, looking for those whose heart is perfect, that is completely leaning on him. The word perfect has to do with the word complete. Completely leaning on him so he can show his strength through them. God's desire is to find hearts that have total confidence in Him so He can show His strength. He looks throughout the world for it. Probably a New Testament counterpart for that verse would be Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. God looking for hearts dependent upon Him. Now, as we go back to Isaiah, and we'll be looking at some other scriptures in connection with Isaiah, We're going to look at two kings found in the book of Isaiah. One will be King Ahaz, and he he will not match the verse we just read. His heart will not be leaning, his confidence will not be in God. But the other will be King Hezekiah, also found in Isaiah, whose heart, by God's grace, is leaning as perfect as confidence in God. We're going to look at lessons from Ahaz and Hezekiah. Lessons that will teach us how to do it and how not to do it. What pleases God? Because without faith, it is impossible to please Him. We'll begin with Hezekiah first, going to Isaiah chapter 36, please. The book of Isaiah chapter 36. Isaiah 36. As it turns out, uh, Hezekiah is Ahaz's son. Ahaz turned out to be a bad king. He did not do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah, on the other hand, will turn out to be a good king. He did that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. And sometimes good kings have bad sons. There's no formula here. And sometimes bad kings have good sons. And Hezekiah did not follow in the foots of his father and we see here uh, in chapter 36 when that Assyrian uh, taunting came to uh, Hezekiah and Jerusalem. He was the king of Judah and Jerusalem was the chosen city of God. You know, 1 Kings 11:36, Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen me to put my name there. And, and as this Assyrian Empire came and was destroying countries all around them, and eventually, uh, 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 in fact, took northern Israel into captivity, and now we're defeating some of the surrounding cities of Jerusalem in the, in the county of Judah. As that was happening, the Rabshika, the prime minister uh, of the king of Syria, uh, comes to uh, threaten Hezekiah and the destruction of Jerusalem. So we'll break in here at Isaiah 36 and verse 4. Isaiah 36 and verse 4. And Rabshekah, and some of you will have the Rabshakeh, said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? And so the question is, Who are you trusting? Where is your confidence? What confidence are you trusting in? Where is your faith, Hezekiah? Uh, Are you putting it in the right place? And he's going to taunt him not to put it in the Lord. (laughs) Verse 5, but I say, say as thou, but they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now, on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? You're rebelling against me and not paying tribute to the king of Assyria. Who's going to save you? Who are you trusting? You need to put confidence in me. I'm your savior, politically speaking here. So who are you trusting? Well, verse 6. Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. You think Egypt's going to help you? (laughs) It'll it'll just destroy you. Don't put confidence in Egypt. And furthermore, in verse 7. But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, ye shall not worship before this altar? Now therefore give pledges, or bribes as we say today, uh, I, I pray thee to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses if thou be able on thy part to set riders there upon them, and, and so on. Uh, You trust in the Lord? Well, Hezekiah doesn't believe in him, not understanding. He took away his altars throughout Jerusalem. He'd go on to say, the Lord has actually instructed me to destroy you. And so we come to a question this morning, brothers and sisters, where is your confidence? It's in the context of political salvation, first of all. It has other applications. As we see a nation crumbling, as we see a world crumbling, what is the solution to it? What party will save it, the Republican or the Democratic? What leader will save it? What man will save it? Where is your confidence? That is a question posed to King Hezekiah. Without looking at every detail, you go further, if you would, uh, uh, to verse uh, chapter 37. Chapter 37. A follow-up letter, taunting him is also sent to Hezekiah. And in chapter 37, you go to verse 14. Chapter 37 and verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up unto the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, Here's Hezekiah in impossible circumstances. Assyria, the number one power that day, has successfully destroyed other nations and even the cities of Judah, And now saying to Hezekiah in Jerusalem, you're next. But Hezekiah doesn't turn to man. He doesn't go to Egypt and make an alliance. He doesn't go to Babylon and buy off other kings so they'll have a greater army to attack Assyria. He goes to the Lord. His confidence in impossible circumstances, he takes it to the Lord himself in prayer. And he goes on to pray in verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwelleth between the cherubim, Thou art the God, even thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. He knew as God, you know, beholding your God, the creator. You're the great one. Uh, You're the only God. Why would I go anywhere else? You're the only God. Verse 17. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which is sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries. That's true what they're saying. They've defeated everybody. Verse 19, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands and wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. It is true they're conquering all the gods, but there's really no other gods. They're just, you know, human images. Verse 20, it pays to have a correct understanding of God. Verse 20, now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. Save us from his hand. Political salvation, as we were talking about. So the whole world will know that you're the only God. Yes, he can defeat other gods for their false, but he can't defeat you. Concerned about the glory of God and that he is the only God. Well, look at verse 21. Verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. God was pleased, and that his confidence, his heart, was perfect toward God. And his eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And in Hezekiah, God's eyes stopped. He found a man daring to look to Him alone and His glory. And God acknowledged, I've heard your prayer. I've appreciated what you've done. Again, as Hebrews 11.5 says, without faith, or 11.6, it is impossible to please Him. Well, God goes on to answer His prayer and He says this in verse 35, Isaiah 37 and verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. I've made promises, and I will defend this city. God gives him his word, and then he goes into action in verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and four fourscore and five thousand. It's hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. One angel in the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, One angel just kills 185,000 humans like that. That's quite a number, and they have to return back, and the whole threat is thwarted and so on. And so there was political salvation, freedom for God's people that day. You know, as we look at the collapse of our country and the collapse of this world, as we said earlier, who's going to save it? As much as spiritual salvation from our sin and from judgment and from hell is not by works. I want to submit that the coming kingdom of God that will crush the world and its evil and set up the righteous rule of God is not by human works either. Remember when Egypt was delivered, or excuse me, Israel was delivered from Egypt in slavery in Exodus, and they got to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh had changed his mind. He says, I lost my servants. We have to enslave them again, so they will serve me. And the Egyptian army was behind Israel, and they were blockaded by the Red Sea in the front, and the Egyptian army by the back, and they started to fear They were entrapped. And Moses said in Exodus 14, 13, fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Salvation there wasn't salvation from the plague of God. That was solved by the Passover, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the spotless lamb. This salvation is from the tyranny of Egypt so they could be free to serve God. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He went on to say in Exodus 14, 14, and ye shall hold your peace, for the Lord shall fight for you. It too was a gospel, not of works. You'll hold your peace, the Lord shall fight for you. You know, there's coming a day the Lord Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to crush this world and all the armies led by antichrist in Revelation seventeen fourteen, And these shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and they that are with him are called chosen and faithful. He's coming back to free Jerusalem again and bring peace to the Mideast and peace to the world. And his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It will not be some negotiation of peace with men and compromises. It is the work of God himself. And political salvation is not up to you and I. It's in the second coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. Talk about tonight, Lord willing. Uh, That provides spiritual salvation, but political salvation will be Christ also coming in power in his second advent, and here we have a picture of that in Hezekiah. Uh, He didn't even fire a shot. One angel wiped out 185,000 men. He didn't marshal an army. He didn't shoot an arrow. He looked to God, and God did it for him. God showed his strength, and so a man who had faith in God, and God honored that man However, his father Ahaz was not a man of faith. I want to learn by contrast of a man whose heart was not perfect toward God. So let's go backward in Isaiah a bit to chapter 7. And look at the father of Hezekiah, Ahaz. And we'll read more about him later that he did not do that was what was right in the eyes of God. But we'll see here, he is to his face during his reign with an attack of the enemy, wanting to bring Jerusalem politically to an end and destroy uh, the city of God and so on. Ahaz will react different than Hezekiah did. So we're in Isaiah chapter 7, learning by contrast, and looking at verse 1, Isaiah 7 and verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, That Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So there's an alliance. Northern Israel was still existing here. They made an alliance with Syria to have a double army, and their goal was to come to the southern Israel, to Judah, where Ahaz was reigning, and wipe that city out and take it over and and rule. That was their goal. Now look at verse 2. And it was told the house of David, saying, now Ahaz was of the house of David, the royal line of David. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved. And the heart of his people as trees of the wood are moved with the wind. He just got a report there's a northern alliance that's marshaled all their troops together, and they're coming to attack you, and it shook him up. Like a tree blowing in the wind back and forth. That the man is shaken, as well as all Jerusalem. They fear here. Well, look at verse 3 Isaiah 7 and verse 3. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and shir Jashab, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the Fuller's Field. God wanted to encourage this shaken man, God wanted to give him a chance. He's searching for hearts. Whose hearts are perfect toward him. So he sends his prophet to give him Ahaz a personal word. And here's what Isaiah is to tell Ahaz, verse 4: And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, uh, for the fierce anger of Raisin with Syria and of the son of Romalia. Be quiet, just be at peace. It's enough to shake you up. But, but really don't do anything. Uh, these firebrands, they're, they're not going to do what they claim. Verse 5, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it. Let us make a breach therein for us and set up a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tobiel. We're going to overthrow the capital of Judah and Jerusalem." And we're going to get rid of Ahaz the king, and we're going to install our own king and have our own style of government. We're going to bring the house of David to an end. He says, Don't get upset at such tidings, trying to encourage him. Then God gives him his word. Look at verse 7. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. No matter what these firebrands belch out and smoke, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and so be, be quiet, Ahaz, and don't fear. God goes on to say in verse 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Raisin. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it shall not be a people. These people you're worried about, they're not going to exist in 65 years, and they didn't. Okay. Uh, verse 9, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. There must have been some doubt there. If you don't believe, God can't establish you. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. God makes promises, but who do we trust? Where is our confidence? And so he showed some doubt here, and he was given a warning. But God in grace wants this man's heart. So look what happens next in verse 10. Isaiah 7 and verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Ahaz again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. There must have been doubt. You don't think God can do it? God will graciously give you a sign. Ask a big sign, something in the heavens or something on earth. Ask a sign. God means what he says. And here's Ahaz's answer in verse 11 or verse 12. 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt or test the Lord. Well, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to tempt the Lord. Now, at first, that sounds like a good positive statement. You know, like we read the Word of God, somebody says, do you need a sign? No, I don't need a sign. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's good faith. It appears at first glance to be that kind of a statement. Why would I need a sign when God said it? But that's not what he's thinking, as you'll see in a minute. Uh, look at the next verse, Verse 13. And he said, hear now, hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? You weary men, but now you're wearying God. You see, his, his reason for saying, I don't want a sign, is because he even doubted God meant what he said. Why ask for a sign when he's not going to do what he said anyway? He didn't trust God. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been connected with somebody who's a drunkard or a drunk and they get drunk, and then they say, I'll never do it again. And then they get drunk, I, I, I'll never drink again. And they keep saying that. And one day they come up to you and say, look, you, you, you really don't have to fire me. I'll never drink again, I promise. Let's shake hands, I mean it. You'll say, just save your energy. <laughs> I'm not going to shake hands, save your energy. You know, don't weary me. Or <laughs> That's what he's saying here. You know, why weary God? In other words, I'm not going to ask for a sign. Uh, there, there's not a God out there who can do it anyway. Why even bother with a sign? That's the attitude of Ahaz. You'll see that come through clearly later on. Well, God gives him one. Anyway, look at verse 14. He doesn't want it, but God will give it, and it will help other generations. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Isaiah would have a son that would have a timetable in this prophecy, but that is a more distant prophecy also. You see, someday in the house of David, another son would be born, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Mary, that virgin girl, bore that son, Isaiah, or rather Matthew 123 20, 1, says, A virgin shall bring forth a child and a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And that seed of David, for that's who Jesus was. He was God with us. And Matthew 1.1 says, The beginning of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so there is a son of David coming, and and he will put down the Gentile powers in his day. He'll come back with a sword in his mouth. God will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, Zechariah 14.2. And on the eve of their destruction, what looks like their destruction, the Lord will come forth with his saints from heaven, and he'll put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the son of David, God with us, will destroy. That will be the sign. But that has implications for you and I. But it didn't mean nothing to Ahaz, for his heart didn't look to God. So, so his, his, uh, his son, Hezekiah, he'd pray to God, and God honored that man. Ahaz would go to pagan Gentile powers for his help. We're going to see a little more on this. Some of the Chronicles and Kings report some of these stories in more detail that Isaiah gives us. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16. A little more on Ahaz before we get back to that positive example of Hezekiah. 2 Kings 16. And looking at verse 1 as we get to 2 Kings 16. 2 Kings 16, verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remilia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. 20 years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and did not... That which was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, like David, his father. 20 years old, he reigned for 16 years, but God's commentary on him, he didn't do that which is right in my sight, like David, his father. Goes on to give some of his sins in verse 3. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, yea, and made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. And then look at verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, we just learned about that in Isaiah. Get some more details here, verse five. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they could not besiege Ahaz, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria, and drove the Jews from Elath, and the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. So. Ahaz sent messengers to Tilgath-Pilzer, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. He did not turn to God. He didn't put sackcloth on like Hezekiah and lift up his hands to God and say, there is no other God. You're the only God that can do it. He goes to the powers of the world. And he's going to hire and bribe, uh, attempt to bribe the king of Assyria and ask man to save him. Where's your confidence? Not only in salvation from hell do you look to man there. We hope not. It's not by works. But in the salvation of this sinful world that's crumbling, where are you putting your hope on some new program, some new Christian agenda of reconstructionist theology or whatever it is that can bring this world back? Where are you putting your trust in some man? He goes to man and he says, save me. What a, what a lack of faith to God. <laughs> no wonder he didn't do right in the eyes of the Lord. And, and, well, uh, how will he get the king of Assyria to help him? Well, here's how he gets him. Look at verse 8. 2 Kings sixteen eight. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. <laughs> He starts to devalue the house of God, the temple of God. He takes silver and gold from God's sanctuary, from the temple. It doesn't mean a whole lot to him. And to get the pagan approval and the the worldly help, he will start to devalue the house of God where God's name dwelt. And he bribes the king of Assyria with it. Well, verse 19, And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, and carried the people of it captive, to Kerr uh, and slew resin. And so there seemed to be some temporary results of a man who turned to the world. Well, verse nine, verse nine or rather verse 10. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgoth Pelzer, king of Assyria. So he's going to meet this man. They're now in alliance, and they might have further negotiations. So he leaves Israel, and he goes up here to to meet him at Damascus. And this happens in verse 10. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all that the workmanship thereof. Here's a man that when your heart is not looking to God, a whole package of error usually comes with it. It's usually not just one thing. Yeah, he bribed pagan powers to save him from the hand of man, but he didn't have a heart for the house of God. He didn't have a heart for God. He's visiting another religion up there in Damascus. He said, look at their altar. Wow, that's nicer than the one we have back in Jerusalem. And he gets the pattern of that altar and sends that pattern back to the priest in Jerusalem to build that altar in the house of God. He started to tamper with the house of God. Now, before we look at the progression of this story anymore, it would just be helpful to understand something about the house of God. So if you'd kindly keep something here in 2 Kings 16, just go back a bit to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, actually forward, Chapter 28, just forward a bit to 1 Chronicles 28. For there's a truth here we need to understand to understand what Ahaz is doing wrong. That when God builds a house, his dwelling place among his people, God always gives a pattern how he wants it. God always gives a pattern how he wants it. I would think you'd do that with your house. If you're building a new house, you'd tell the architect how you want it. He would say, well, that's a nice idea, that swimming pool, but I think maybe a mother-in-law apartment would look better there. You can do that with your house. (laughs) This is my house. And so your house is by your design. And whenever God dwells among people, it is his house. It's his design. Uh, Remember the tabernacle, you know, that portable tent, that first formal place God ever dwelt on planet Earth among Israel? Let them make me a sanctuary that, that I may dwell among them. Exodus 25, 8. He goes on to give all kind of detail to Moses of how to make that tabernacle sanctuary. And he admonishes him at the end of chapter 25 of Exodus in verse 40, see that thou make them according to their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. That the tabernacle was exactly according to design the pattern of God for it's his house. There's a future millennial kingdom coming during the kingdom age. Uh, Ezekiel tells us all about it. And there'll be a pattern. Ezekiel 43.10 Thou shalt measure the pattern. Wherever God dwells, wherever his house is, there's a pattern for God. And when it came to the temple, it too had a pattern. Not only the tabernacle, the temple in Solomon's time. So, So look here in 1 Chronicles 28 and look at verse 11. Verse 11. 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 11. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and of the houses thereof and the treasuries thereof and the upper chambers thereof and the inner parlors thereof and the place of the mercy seat. Even though Solomon was a great builder and would build this temple for God, he was not going to use his creative imagination here. His father David handed him a pattern, a blueprint. Where did David get it? Verse Verse 12. Verse 12 of 1 Chronicles 28. And the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord. He had the pattern by the Spirit. Look, look he goes on to say here, look, look at verse 18, 28:18. 18, and for the altar of incense refined gold by weight, and gold for the pattern of the chariot, of the cherubim that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. All these designs, he says, God gave it to me, Solomon, and it's written down for you. You have a pattern to go by in the house of God, (laughs) in the house of God. And then look at chapter 29 and verse 1, chapter 29 and verse 1 of 1 Chronicles. Furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great for the palace, referring to the house of God, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. You know, we need to pray for our younger generation that they'll get a hold of this truth, that the house of God is not for man. It's not for us. It's for the Lord God. You know, wherever God dwells, because he's holy, there is a pattern. Brothers and sisters, we get to the New Testament, and he still has a house. We know what it is, 1 Timothy 3.15. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. It's now the church, and Peter calls it a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2.5. Not bricks and gold and an edifice like this here. It is a spiritual house of born-again believers assembled together. And it's his house. Do you think God has a pattern for the New Testament assembly? He has for everything else. you think he kind of scrapped that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 14, spiritually speaking now, when Paul is writing the order of the assembly, the centrality of the breaking of bread, he also covers headship, which is in the assembly and goes beyond the assembly of covering for the woman at certain times, a lack of covering for the man. He goes into the plurality and order of gifts in the Christian assembly. Well, there'll be a plurality. After all that type of teaching, he says, and the silence of the women in the assembly and the oral responsibility of the man. After all that type of teaching, in 1 Corinthians 14.37, he says this, If any man among you think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Not Pauline opinion. It's written for us. The commandments of the Lord for his assembly. It's his house. There is a pattern. But we come to King Ahaz and we're going to see that pattern. God didn't grip him. Confidence in God didn't grip him. It was a package. God's word didn't grip him. That He could look at God's house and devalue it to get the approval of the pagan nations. And he would also change the order of it. And so, with that in mind, that it was established by a pattern, if you go back here to uh, 1 Chronicles or 2 Kings 16, see what's happening again. I'm going to reread verse 10. 2 Kings 16, verse 10. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Telgoth Pileser, king of Assyria and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. He saw something nicer than God's. He sends back to the priest, he says, I like this one better, he got it from the world. He didn't get it from above. He got it from looking at other religions. Verse 11, and Uriah the priest built an altar According to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus to Urijah the priest, made it against King Ahaz, made it against King Ahaz came from Damascus. Verse 12. And when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and offered thereon. Here he comes, and he sees this brand new, great altar, and now he'll give God his offerings. He offered to other gods, but he offered to God too. God was a God among the gods. And he offered to God thereon. Verse 13, and he burnt his burnt offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. And he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord, from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. Hmm. What are you doing with God's altar, the brazen altar, that there was a pattern for it? He didn't scrap it right away. He simply moved it from its forefront position where it was be, be, at the forefront of the, of the temple and the labor would come after it. He takes it from its forefront position before the Lord and will put his great altar there, not scrapping it, not apostatizing all at once, just moving it over to the north side. It doesn't have a place of prominence now like it once did. The great altar will have that. Well, look at verse 15. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meat offering, and the king's burnt sacrifice and his meat offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their meat offering and their drink offering, and sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifices, and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded." Uh, you, you see, uh, this one I'm going to offer all the sacrifice, this great altar, this is much bigger and fancier than, the, than, than, than this brazen altar, but I'm not going to do away with the brazen altar. Just took it from the forefront to the north side and said, I'll inquire at this one. When I want to know God's will, when I want to know whether to go to battle, whatever, I'll use this for praying to God, but, but this isn't my real offering and worship over here. And so he just set it aside. You think that can happen in the church of God, People no longer having a heart for God and things that are dear to the heart of God like the centrality of the Lord's Supper in the Christian assembly. That whenever they gather together, if you read it carefully, they remember the Lord and showed forth his death till he come. And yet we see evolving in the church of God that the Lord's Supper is not all that important. We can just make it once in a while and we'll bring in worship teams and praise teams. We don't scrap the Lord's Supper. It's just not in a place of prominence. Or it's moved to a time in an assembly where maybe a few older people that want it will still have it. But the, 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 most of the congregation just want the praise team and the, 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 the music and a little bit of teaching. And so they'll have two services that sometimes will put it way into evening. Not that evening is wrong, but they'll put it when most people don't assemble. You know what I'm saying. And it's just kind of put on the north side but the real worshiping, it's not the Lord's supper, the remembrance of him, the breaking of the bread and the cup. It's all this glorious performance and drama and everything else. And they didn't get those ideas from Scripture. They had to look around to get them from other religions. still happens today. And that's King Ahaz. Look what else he did in verse 17. Second Kings 16 and verse 17. And Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases, and removed the laver from off them, and took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that were under it, and put up on it a pavement of stones. Now the laver was that cleansing basin where the priests would wash the dirt off their hands and feet before they would go into the sanctuary to accomplish the service of God. Daily defilement. And it was on brazen oxen, and probably he used those to bribe the pagan powers. He needed wealth. He devalued the house of God. We already learned that. So he just lowered the labor. It's not going to rest on the pavement. You know what the picture is there? What what cleanses us? The word of God, taking heed to his word, and the cleansing today that our lifestyles, we've been exhorted by Brother Joe, uh, uh, has a standard by God. That's cheaper today. It's lowered. Well, you know, he's a God of grace, and you know, certain things matter, and certain things we don't matter. And the, the standard of cleansing and the power of the word is just lowered. He took this cleansing vessel and just brought it lower to the ground. That's what he did. And then you look at verse 18. And the covert, or some of you have pavilion. For the Sabbath they had built in the house, and the king's entry without, turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. And so again, for the king of Assyria, he got rid of the pavilion and the entryway uh, that the king would use. When the king would come with the house of God, he'd have this shade and that for, for all the ceremonies. But he's not going to be at the house of God that much. So it's not that valuable to him. I can use this for the king of Assyria, because I don't plan to spend a whole lot of time there. You start to see this heart of no confidence in God doesn't cling to God's word either and devalues the house of God. There's more on this. If you go to the Chronicles account, to 2 Chronicles 28. Second Chronicles 28, please. I just want to take you down to the end of the chapter. You start to do these things, and they come into God's house, and they take you somewhere, a heart of no trust in God and his word. It will take you somewhere. Again, to buy off the king. Look at verse 21, of 2 Chronicles 28 and verse 21. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and of the princes and gave it unto the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. And in the time of his distress did he trespass yet more against the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus which smote him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all Israel. Looking for man and other religions to save him. Verse 24. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every several city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Eventually, he said, it's so devalued, he just shut the doors. And there's other places we'll do it. He built altars all around Jerusalem. It led to the worship of other gods and so on. Given enough time, this man's lack of trust in God would look to man to save him and would do it man's way and would start to devalue the house of God and bring in the world's altar and displace God's altar, lower the laver, eventually shut the doors of the house of God. The testimony is lost, such as King Ahab. God did not find a perfect heart in him. He tried. He sent Isaiah the prophet. It meant nothing to Ahaz. But as we've learned, there's King Hezekiah. He found a perfect heart, completely trusting him, would would take it to the Lord in impossible circumstances, and God saved Jerusalem. Look further, what happens now in chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles. Ahaz's son comes along, verse 1. Second Chronicles 29, verse 1. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 5 and 20 years old, and he reigned 9 and 20 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Verse 2. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. It's a different commentary. He did that which is right, a man who had a heart and confidence in God and his word. Look at the first official act that it records here of his administration. Look at verse three. Verse three, 2 Chronicles 29. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. A man who cared for God's glory and God's house, where God's name was, and he opens the doors that his fathers had shut and he starts to repair the whole thing his father had torn down. What a heart he had for God. And in restoring the whole sacrificial system and everything, I want you to notice what he does here as we go a little further down in the chapter here. And uh, look, if you would, at verse 18. 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 18. Then they went into Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord and the altar of burnt offering with all the vessels thereof. And the showbread table with all the vessels thereof. They didn't go back to the great altar. They got the altar of the Lord. They went back to God's pattern and restored that. Look at verse 19. Moreover, all the vessels which King Ahaz in his reign did cast away in his transgression. Have we prepared and sanctified? And behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. (laughs) Not the great altar. Altar of the Lord is back in the forefront. God's pattern, God's way. Look at verse 21. And they brought seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven he goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. It mattered to him. If God said it, it's worth doing. And so he used the altar of the Lord. Verse 22. So they killed the bullocks, and the priest received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, when they had killed the rams, they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. And they killed also the lambs, and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. And you can keep reading on. The restoration of the house of God. Well, What was his guideline? It wasn't like his father, that he would go to another religion and say, wow, that works here. Let's bring that into the house of God. Yeah, we won't won't get rid of everything. We'll just move it over here. And, And that started a progression of shutting the doors one day. Now, that's not where Hezekiah got his instructions in this revival. Go to chapter 30, and you'll see where he got it. Chapter 30. And look at verse uh, 6. Make it verse 5. Chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles and verse 5. So they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not done it, of such a long time in such sort as it was written. The restoration of the memorial feast, Passover, and they did it as it was written. It was the word of God that guided him, not the pagan religions around him, uh, other religions. Look further here in in verse uh, uh, 12 of chapter 30, verse 12. Also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king, and of the princes by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, please. And they stood in their place after their manner according to the law of Moses, the man of God. They're going by God's word, God's law. Look at verse 18. For a multitude of the people, even as many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they did eat the Passover otherwise, and it was written... But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, the good Lord pardon everyone. There were some unique circumstances. They had to do it different in the beginning. But he didn't say, well, that's just, you know, cool. He prayed for forgiveness for the people. And it was a very temporary thing, and they corrected it later. The written word governed him. Uh, look for the last references here in chapter 31. Chapter 31 and verse 3. 31.3 of 2 Chronicles three, and he appointed also the king's portion of his substance for the burnt offerings, to wit for the morning and the evening burnt offerings, and to burnt offering for the Sabbaths and the new moons and for the set feast, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Everything happening, you can say right here, chapter and verse, you know, verse 4. Moreover, he commanded the people that dwelt in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priest and the Levites that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. You kind of want a summation of this whole revival? You look at the last verse of chapter 31, verse 21. A lot of things are called revival today. Our brother Joe has reminded us of revival. Make revival pass through a test. Not how many people are excited. Not, not, Not how many numbers people give you. Is it going back to the written word of God? True revivals in the Bible go back to the written word of God. The dead church At Sardis in Revelation 3, he said, Remember how thou hast heard and received, and hold fast and repent. Go backwards to what you've already received, the word that was given to you. Repent. Go back to that. And so revival, you can tell if it's real, if it's going back to the word of God. Look at at verse 21 here. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, and in the law, and in the commandments, to seek his God, He did it with all his heart and prospered. A man who had a heart for God, and God showed his strength through him, and he did it with all his heart according to his commandments. So brothers and sisters, we have that same test today. A world that's crumbling. The church of God that people are changing. And how do we fix it? Where is your confidence? It is only the Lord that will save politically. And our confidence needs to be in the Lord and his word in the church of God. That we have something to go by. We don't have to try to bring in new things to fix it. We need to go back to what we were given. The things, as we've heard, that Brother Joe's been bringing before us in Second Timothy 2.2. The things that thou have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who should be able to teach others also. The same, not something new. What you heard of me, the next generation gets. As Paul said again in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, the things that I write unto you, speaking of the church's order, are the commandments of the Lord. May God encourage you and I, as we go back, and all kind of voices will be after us, that without faith, it's impossible to please Him, that our confidence will be in the living God who's able and the truth of His word. God encourage you in this. Let's just close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to Thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And Father, we thank Thee for Thy words that were written for us, these examples to learn from, what pleases Thee and what doesn't. And may we have, seek to have those hearts and seek Thee with all our heart like Hezekiah and find that Thou wilt show Thyself strong. And believe thy wisdom and thy ways in the house of God. And a God who is able. And Father, we, we look for the, in the condition of this world, not for new politics, but we look for a Savior. We look for the Lord Jesus coming. And, and he's the answer for sin and for judgment of our sin, as we'll see. And he's the answer for this world. And We thank thee for this Savior. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, as we pray and thank thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.